Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Now or Never, the show that celebrates what it takes to try and reminds you that you are not alone when you do. I am Ipi Chiwetelu and Trevor Deneen for just a minute. Can you stop hammering? No, I cannot. I appreciate the ask, Ify, but I have bitten off way more than I can chew right now, and time is of the essence. Listen, I know you bought a house recently and you're doing some renos, but I thought you were going to be hiring people to do this and also not doing it while we're doing this job. Yeah, we all have plans, Ify. Everyone has plans, good intentions. And when I took this project on, I thought to myself, you know what, in order to save money, I can just do the demo myself. I can get in there, rip out the whole main floor, save myself thousands of dollars, and everything will be fine. But guess what? It is a lot more work than I'd ever planned. And I am exhausted, I am tired, and this whole thing has become one giant family affair. You have to be careful by the ceiling, though, that you don't see the ceiling. My mom, my dad, my wife. Where does this come from? Everyone's been putting in the hours over here, Ify. We're all covered in sawdust and sweat. At least the kids are somewhere safe. Now look at that. That's my one. Look at you go. Well, you, you would think that, but it's all hands on deck, <laughs> That's so cute. The hard part's going to be getting them to stop breaking down their walls once it's all said and done. Oh, there's so much more work they still have to do, Ify. So much more. But I am definitely glad. I, I've saved thousands of dollars, obviously. But the stress, the hours, the aches and pains that came with ripping everything out ourselves, it's very real as well. We have all had those moments of frustration, of being tired of waiting for something to happen, just wishing we could do it ourselves. But it is easier said than done. Well, today we're meeting people who have said enough is enough and are taking matters into their own hands. I'm just an average Joe, and in the last five years, I mean, we've took clean arbors from one guy out in the water, rolling tars up the hill and throwing them up on the beach, to having a half million dollars worth of equipment. I want to see crews for clean arbors all the way up on the eastern seaboard, and maybe uh, all over the world, right? Why not? I'm currently 19 weeks pregnant with a baby girl, and um, I'm doing it on my own. How does it feel to say that? Um, a lot of pride, honestly. I've been practicing saying that to a lot of people for quite a few weeks now. It really doesn't faze me if someone says, oh, I'd never do that, because yeah. I'm like, that's cool. Like, I'm, I'm different. Can't go back to regular. Like, what are we, why are we lying? Like, everything's okay. Why are we smiling? Like, you know, we weren't just, you know, all in the mosque feeling like, you know, bleak. So I don't want to be a part of the problem. We have to do something. We don't know what it is, but we're going to call everybody we know and and show up. This is Now or Never. Doing it yourself. Speaking of which, can you pass me a Robertson screwdriver? You don't even know what that is. No one does. Literally nobody. (laughs) 
so many people are going to write in and send you pictures of Robert's That's okay. I like it. That brought me joy. Jenny McDougal and her dog Bowser have pulled up behind the Grace Inn, a rundown motel in Quinell, BC. Jenny's carrying a cloth grocery bag covered with colorful cartoon hearts and inside medication from the pharmacy. But it's not for her. Um, so these are the medications and these are some of the people that I deliver for. So I've got one, two, three. Right now I've got about eight bags of meds and I've already done about uh, eight today. Uh, my name is Jenny McDougall and today I'm bringing prescribed medications to people who use illicit substances. Hello, Hi. how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good. Seven yeah. days a week, Jenny visits motels, homeless shelters and tents by the river, delivering prescription medicine from the pharmacy to people living with addictions, okay, providing safer alternatives to drugs like meth, coke and heroin. I just uh, bring it because I feel like it's a bag of love and because it gives people an option of not having to play Russian roulette every time they, they need to use. Hello, here's your medication. Busy place it is. How are you? I've been on Safe Supply, the Oak program, for a little over a year now. And it's actually helped me to like get my life back on track. And I was out on the street before I was a drug addict. I was out on the street because of a violent relationship. And then I became a drug addict and kind of fell apart completely. And so, yeah, having it delivered helps because I have PTSD and really bad memory loss. So Jenny runs a program that delivers it and she brings it every day, which keeps me on top of what day it is. <laughs> and yeah, and she's great. She's a great support system too. If I didn't have this, my normal daily function would not exist. And yeah, my life would fall apart again. Thank you. Jenny started making these deliveries just over three years ago because she knows firsthand the difference they can make. And she sees the devastation that comes with a toxic supply of street drugs. The service is at noon at Clayton's. Okay. Um, I, I don't, I can't go to that because okay. I have to work, but... Um, no, we've lost too many people to having street drugs. Yeah, our friend um, passing away, that was really horrible. Yeah. And he had just gone, like, I couldn't believe that he actually went oh to treatment. Because he was, I seen him the night before. Yeah. he didn't want nothing to do with it. Yeah. Nothing at all. It was horrible. We've had four um, deaths uh, related to toxic supply in the last few weeks. Um, and I, the reason I'm not saying overdose is because I, I don't call it overdose. It's not, they're not using too much. They use a little tiny bit and it's contaminated and they drop. So we call it a toxic drug supply poisoning crisis now. It's devastating. Um, you know, you don't even have a chance to process or grieve and the next person is gone. So I have to just suck it up and keep going so that um, I try and save other lives. Um, I know what it's like. I'm on methadone myself. I was addicted to heroin and crack for like 25 years. When I was really young, we were raised a very strict Jehovah's Witness, a uh, very volatile uh, household though. Uh, lots of physical abuse and my stepfather was an alcoholic who was very violent with my mom. 
Um, and when they got divorced, my mom married a person who was um, a drug dealer. And that's when we first got introduced to drugs. There was a lot of drugs around our house and like cocaine and was the drug. Um, and that's where I first got drugs and started using was sneaking them out of my mom's closet. Um, and uh, by the time I was 19, I was addicted. And then from there I went on the, ended up on the streets and very, very addicted to the point where I lost all my teeth. I developed HIV. Um, I, I was beat uh, very badly and raped um, in, in my, a couple times that happened. I didn't see my family for at least eight years. Um, you know, I, I, I remember not remembering what my kids, I didn't know what they looked like anymore. And, um, and I just remember thinking like, you know, I want to see my kids again. I don't want them to think of me. They didn't know me. So all they would know is I'm some, some junkie in an alley that died, you know, from overdose or whatever, you know, and I just didn't want to leave that legacy to my kids. I wanted to know them. I wanted another chance. Actually, what happened was I was sitting outside the Surrey shelter and this um, East Indian man came by and he seen me crying and I was just so, I had given up. I just didn't, you know, I didn't know how to get help or anything. And he reached his hand down and he said, are you ready to stop killing yourself? And I said, yeah. And I just, I don't know what possessed me to trust this person, but I went with him and he took me to a recovery house in Surrey. I was terrified when I first got sober, I didn't leave my house. I was so scared I would relapse and I would rather die than go through that again. I, I just can't do it again. If I didn't find methadone, I would never have stopped. Like having that medication and the pharmacy delivered it to me, um, I was able to stop working the streets. I was able to stop stealing. I started to like myself more. Um, I started to want to make changes. I got into housing um, and eventually stopped using. And now I've come way down. I'm on a much lower dose now and I've been very happy. I've been in the same place for 10 years. Uh, I have got my driver's license for the first time at 50. I, I'm an active grandma and mom and sister and family member. And the pharmacy delivering it to me was the only way I didn't keep missing doses. And I remembered that and I just, I, I just knew that that would be a big gap filler. So I just started doing it. You know, I needed to be with my homies, right? With my people. And this is the way that I could be around them. The people that I'm the same as. We went through very similar things. Um, like nobody understands that unless they've lived through it. They understand what it is but not how it feels, right? Um, to be out there and be shunned by society and hated by society. I did not feel, I didn't ever think I would even have a job or I just didn't think I had that in me uh, to be competent and re reliable. And it's just so humbling. Like I didn't know that I had expertise, you know? And um, it's changed my whole life, this work. It's changed everything. You know, when you hear someone is taking matters into their own hands, it sounds like it could be a lonely thing. Mm -hmm. But with Jenny, I'm just reminded that it can be a path to 
you know, real connections and, and building community. That's so true. For Amanda Cascanet and Dave Barrett, trying to be as self-sufficient as possible hasn't necessarily increased the people in their lives, but it has multiplied the number of animals. Uh, we have a dog named Caddis, and we have a cat named Minnow, and then we have chickens and rabbits and turkeys. Uh, one of the turkeys is a pet, and her name is Steve. And she she likes to sing. She sings a lot. So Stevie Nicks. We were at a friend's house. We were giving them some of our chickens, and they said, oh, do you want this turkey? And we're like, okay. So we put her in the back of our SUV at the time, drove her home, and we just didn't end up uh, processing her that year and just kind of just started living with the chickens as as a chicken. As a chicken. And so we've had her for a few years now. So we decided to just let her live her life out. But I this that is one lucky turkey. Coming up on Now or Never, we are going to bring you to Wilderstead, a 16-acre property in Ontario where Amanda and Dave are saying enough is enough to capitalism. Stay tuned. That you won't be walking out the door. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. And all through this episode, Trevor, I've been hearing just one thing over and over in my head. What? Sisters are doing it for themselves. Who? Who? <laughs> is that Aretha? Little Aretha, little Annie Lennox. Ooh, a dream team. Today, there is no more waiting around for others to help us out. We are meeting people taking matters into their own hands, even if that means doing it for yourself. Sophie Davey understands that very well, but she is going to have someone joining her in just under five months from now. Um, Well, I picture like a crib, obviously, and like a changing table, and I already have some like cute artwork to put up. And I kind of just picture a very, like, warm, inviting room. And I just feel excited, yeah. 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 A nice, warm, inviting room where the child can scream. Right. <laughs> yeah, and scream and scream and cry. And still the surroundings will be happy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, hi, my name is Sophie. And I'm currently 19 weeks pregnant with a baby girl, and um, I'm doing it on my own. How does it feel to say that? Um, a lot of pride, honestly. Um, I've been <laughs> practicing saying that to a lot of people for quite a few weeks now. People that are just acquaintances, maybe even a few strangers. So I'm getting pretty used to it. I have a few friends that currently don't have children and said, well, I would never do it on my own, like not in a million years. So I know everyone's different. It really doesn't faze me if someone says, oh, I'd never do that. Cause yeah. I'm like, that's cool. Like I'm, I'm different. Yeah. Right. Well, deciding to have a baby by yourself, that's a big decision. That's not something you take lightly. No. Can you take me back and talk to me about what brought you to that moment? Yeah. So I've known for a while, like for sure, since my early thirties that I definitely wanted to have a family and I wanted to have children. And already at that time knew that if it came to it, I would do it on my own. 
Um, when I was around 33 years old, I was single at that time and decided to freeze my eggs. So that was already kind of st a step in that direction of knowing that no matter what was going to happen, this was an insurance policy, I could have children one day, whoever it was with or if it was by myself. And then I did actually meet someone when I was around 34 years old. We dated for just under a year. It was actually a really negative experience. Um, it was quite a toxic relationship, actually. And so when I got out of that, I think that was really the, the deciding factor for me because I found myself, I was 35. It was kind of one of those things where, okay, I could either decide to get back into the dating field and see if I could meet someone who was willing to start a family with me. But that's a lot of pressure, right, at that age to find someone. And I didn't really feel ready to go back into the dating scene because of the negative experience I had just endured. So I thought a better option was to just go ahead and have a baby on my own. And, like, I have no, like, illusions that it's not, like, it's going to be hard right? Like, obviously, having a baby on my own is going to be challenging. But I told myself over and over again, I'm sure that it's not going to be as hard as having a baby with someone that you're not meant to be with or someone dangerous, right? So that was really the deciding factor for me. And there's been, you know, rocky moments since that decision um, and things that were a bit more challenging than, than I expected them to be. But at, never, at no point in time after making that decision have I wavered on that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you mind me asking what the challenging moments were? So one of the things that I actually found more challenging than I initially thought would be challenging was choosing a donor. Such a big decision, right? Mm -hmm. And it made the whole situation a little more isolating I think because you know I'm thinking of all my friends and how well they just fell in love right so that's how they chose third partners and I didn't have that to go on so me being the way I am I made myself a little you know first criteria second criteria list of like who I was going to pick and why and having never done it is it like picking out like your dream scenario like I want these traits these things like there's a lot of physical traits that you can literally like tease out when you're doing the search. Like you can choose how tall or short you're willing to have your donor be, their eye color, their hair color, um, like their, their ethnicity or background. Like there's so much that you could just like filter basically. So yeah, I thought that was interesting and a little strange. Yeah. yeah. What does that process teach you about yourself though when you're going through and you're like, all right, let's go ahead and start picking out the perfect donor. I definitely had some moments of like, well, it, what does that mean about me yeah. almost? So an example, I decided pretty early on, okay, you know what? I'm going to choose a Caucasian donor because I'm Caucasian. But I was, I had like a little bit of a moral like debate in my head about that because that would never be something that I cared about if I met someone and like fell in love with someone, right? Then I don't care about those things. But the reason why I decided to do that is because I feel like my daughter's already going to have a disadvantage in not having a father in her life. And to the, if her 
if her appearance were significantly different than mine and my family and like the people that she knows are her family, I think that might even add even more of a disconnect or maybe just a little bit more of a struggle. So I don't know, that was one struggle, for example. I also thought, okay, what can I not provide for them? So athleticism, nope, can't can't help them there, like really can't. Um, height, really can't help them there either. So I thought, you know what, why don't I look for someone who's tall and athletic and then maybe they have a better chance at it than I did. <laughs> Bringing some, you know, new strengths to the table that I can't provide. <laughs> it's funny, like when you when parenting uh, as someone who has two children myself, I know, like you mentioned, it's hard. Like it's there, there's so many there's sleepless nights in the beginning. There's the, the being up screaming, the feeding, just trying to figure it all out. What goes through your mind when you start thinking about those first few months with your daughter? Yeah, so I have done a lot of thinking about that. Um, Because actually my sister just quite recently had a baby of her own. And she was saying, like, this is really hard, like, these first few weeks. And I I mean, I didn't necessarily need her to tell me that, but it reinforced, okay, this is hard. So I'm going to have a birth doula with me because I thought, well, I definitely don't want to be alone during labor and delivery. And then I'm also going to hire postpartum doulas. So literally their job, I'm going to have one every night for the first two weeks at, at least. Because I thought, and I can already picture this, if I were alone at three in the morning after having not slept for days on end and my baby won't stop crying and I don't know why, I am totally the type of person who would spiral out of control and not know what to do and it would be awful. So I'm going to avoid that by having someone there who literally their job is to take care of newborns and they can also help with you know, holding the baby if I need a nap or, or, or other things. So it honestly sounds like a really helpful solution yeah. to the single mother um, problem. <laughs> Do you let your mind wander past the birth, past like the first year and you start thinking about like the bigger child rearing moments later on and tackling those as, as a single parent? Yeah, I actually think about those a lot, probably more than, well, even the holding your daughter for the first time moments, <laughs> because um, I, I think a reason I think about them a lot is because that's kind of where most of my friends are at with their children. So, you know, the, the kindergarten stage or the toddler stage, I know I'm going to need a lot of support, how I'm going to have to organize my life. I'm going to have to be super organized mom. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, it it doesn't give me stress. It, it empowers me. I feel like if I can tackle it, if I can handle it, that's just going to be so empowering. You mentioned earlier how you're filled with a sense of pride that you're doing this on your own. How has it changed the way you see yourself? So my whole life I've, I've, or at least starting in my like, I don't know, mid to late twenties, I have tried really hard not to shy away from doing things that I want to do just because I don't have someone to do them with. So for example, I've done a lot of traveling on my own because I wanted to go somewhere and everyone else was busy. And I said, okay, well, let's see how this traveling solo thing goes. And I almost feel like this is just like an extent, a natural extension of that. Like I will always do things I want to do if I can manage it regardless of who's doing it with me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What do you want your daughter to know one day when you're able to sit down and talk to her 
about this whole decision and, and process that you've made in order to have her? I just want her to know that she was so incredibly wanted and loved long before I ever met her. Um, and I hope that knowing that with any of the struggles that comes that she has to go through because she has a single parent family that knowing those things really helps her through those and that the reason why she's in the WNBA is because you made the right choices when you checked the boxes (laughs) yeah exactly my extra tall athletic daughter here she comes To know that you are wanted and loved is something every child should feel. And in a few months, when this little lady's born, we'll get Sophie to send us a photo of her and her daughter to share with all of you. And we'll share the name as well. It's going to be Ify. (laughs) (laughs) The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions Podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is Now or Never. I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen, and today is all about getting things done that need to be done, regardless of what it takes or where it may take you. All good? All good. That splash is Sean Bath diving off a boat just off of Newfoundland, but he's not diving for shellfish. He's fishing for garbage. I'm going to get a big tire this time. Okay. And you're going to want hauler taken off. Rain or shine or snow and freezing temperatures, Sean is out here in his wetsuit, diving off a donated boat with a couple of his volunteers, clearing old fishing nets, tires, and batteries out of the ocean. Okay, ghost gear is uh, simply lost or abandoned fishing gear. Um, Once it's in the water and nobody can't retrieve it for whatever reason, it's just drifting around or it's attached to the bottom. Either either way, it's fishing forever. These nets and uh, crab pots and the ropes and that, that... that's year, hundreds of years before that breaks down. Now, before you picture Sean as some kind of eco-warrior, he hasn't always been this way. He actually used to be the type of guy who tossed fast food wrappers out his car window. But after spending more than 20 years working as a commercial diver, diving for sea urchins and seeing firsthand the impact this ghost gear was having on the ocean, something changed. After 21 years swimming over it and seeing it, seeing all the trash on the bottom, right, and it just kind of got to me and I had hoped that before I gave out diving that uh, somebody else would be doing this so I could help them do the cleanups, but uh, nobody didn't start it. So I said, well, if I don't do it now, this is not going to happen, right? So instead of just talking about doing something to help clean up the environment, Sean actually did something. He founded the Clean Harbors Initiative in 2018, despite having zero experience starting up a not-for-profit and no funding. At the very beginning, I had just signed up on my EI and I said, well, I got six months now on EI. Rather than just sit around waiting for that to run out and doing nothing, here's a good chance now to use this six months of EI ad to fund this new project I started. So after six months, we ran out of money, obviously, and uh, then it was like, well, what are we going to do? And some friends of ours 
suggested I set up a GoFundMe. And at that point, like, I didn't even know what a GoFundMe was, right? But uh, we set up the GoFundMe anyhow, and surprisingly enough, we started getting some people donating money to it free and help carry us through. In the years since, Sean has cobbled together donations and the odd government grant to keep going because it costs a lot of money to clean up the oceans. You need boats, gas, expensive equipment, and crew members. But with or without official funding, Sean is not giving up. Actually, I froze my hands so many times back in the day when I was at sea urchins. I got a lot of nerve damage done, so I can't really stand a whole lot of cold my hands. And once the pain goes away, they go numb, and it's not too bad after that. Most people see what we're doing, they think, well, some have actually said, you guys must be getting paid a fortune to be doing this, right? I know there's days, like, for the first three years, we really didn't make any money. And we'd be doing this all winter long by, ourselves, by myself sometimes, and the fishermen would shake your head, like, by something around here, right? But I, mean, I just love it, like, I'd rather be underwater than on the surface. Uh, we're going to go around the other side of the harbour, that's where we're going to start to. We're just going to be doing a surface spin today, and, uh, we're going to film the bottom of the harbour so that we know what's down there when we start doing a, a clean-up area. Every harbour we dive in, we normally film the, bo the bottoms first so that we know what we're working with. Uh, we've already dragged most of the dangerous stuff up out of here, the nets and the ropes and that area. If we clean this harbour, it'll be just like tires and uh, fish pans, rubber clothes and stuff like that that's been lost over the years. But yeah. uh, back in the day, like even myself included, I was just as bad. I, we didn't take much concerned about our oceans right when we should have been and there's a tremendous amount of stuff thrown in the water around these har around these wharves right some of the days we went out and done cleanups one day i think we had a, a 150 trawls and each trawl is 900 feet long right so you imagine 150 trawls times 900 feet long i mean that's a tremendous amount of rope to be out in the ocean drifting around i mean if that gets out past the harbors and that and whales where the whales are swimming around, that's gonna entangle whales or seals, seabirds, whatever, read me. That it? That's it, the hoist. Myself, my father, my grandfather, and many generations before made a living off the ocean, and if they didn't make money from it, they got food to feed their families throughout the winter off the ocean all, all year round. It's been keeping Newfoundlanders alive, I mean, for 500 years, uh, the fishery here in Newfoundland has been a safety net for us, right? And uh, we're destroying it, right? You're destroying what's, what's in the ocean, right? Uh, for all these years, I mean, it's time for us to uh, start taking things out of the ocean other than fish. And I'm hoping that we'll inspire enough people to do it or to get at it, right? And help also if, if they don't want to do it themselves. <laughs> okay, Grace, I need you to take the hook and hook it back onto that white rope that's there with the behind that lobster pot. Okay, we got uh, three or four old lobster pots today and a little bit of netting. We're gonna unload the tires and from the boat to the winch and drop them down our trailer. Once our trailer's full, we'll take it to the, uh, to the uh, Western Regional Waste Management Facility. I guess I'm too stubborn to quit. But there's been days I've broke down a crowd, man. Like, what am I doing to myself? Right? What am I doing to my, my family? I am here trying to do this, and uh, I mean, it definitely has not done much for my uh, my relationship with my partner. Like, we hardly ever get to see each other anymore. Uh, financially, I mean, sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down. And it, what a little bit of personal money I had made in the last little while, that's going to have to go back into 
what we're doing now, right? Just to keep us going. There's times you think nobody actually cares, right? But then you sit down, you read 25 or 30 emails or Facebook messages or whatever, telling you how great you're at, how much they love what you're doing, and right? um, kind of motivates you to keep going, right? I'm just an average Joe, and in the last five years, I mean, we've took clean average from one guy out in the water rolling tars up the hill and throwing them up on the beach to having a half million dollars worth of equipment and uh, money honestly money don't mean squat to me for on a personal level um so long as we got money to feed ourselves keep everything going and uh, stay out here doing this or wherever we're doing it that's pretty much all i really care about we we plan on expanding this like here in newfoundland alone we're planning hopefully by the next couple of years at five crews here right? and more younger people take this over and, and run with it and like I want to see crews for clean harbors all the way up in the eastern seaboard and maybe uh, all over the world right why not I mean the more people we can get out doing this the more stuff we're going to be taking underwater and less animals are going to be drowning due to entanglement right it's hard to quit on something you know so important right it's a lobster it's a fairly large lobster we see how much black is on him from the tire. He's like, been in there for a long time, yeah. Want to hand me a knife and off the floor there? On the right hand side. Clean him up a little bit here now. Make sure he's okay. Get some of the black gunk off him, and then we're just going to let him go back down. become known in your community for being someone who steps up and makes a change, you might start to notice people looking at you a bit differently. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, you know, someone called my dad and said, your son's the activist. I said, look, <laughs> I'm not an activist. Yeah, I think even as they say, oh, community workers or something like that. And, you know, for us, we're just humans, you know, like, like we're not these like activist saviors. You know, like we just try to connect with the people and teach love. That's all it is. You know, it's not um, it's not a job. These mere humans are Mohammed Hassan and Ahmed Shido, childhood friends and now co-founders of Somali Together, an organization that provides programming for Somali youth in the GTA. Hearing them talk about the sports programs, the summer camps, the mentorship opportunities that they have made happen, you'd think this just comes natural to them. But Mohammed and Ahmed are trying to give Somali youth the experiences they wished they had. I was born in Toronto um, and I moved to Brampton uh, for high school. That's where my Ahmed. When we all got to high school, like, um, we were super close friends. I think we did everything together. We we played sports teams together. So we were on clubs together. We were always taking the bus home together. Yeah, very close. You know, if after school we had like a sports or something that we stayed back for school for, um, and somebody had a ride home, no one could uh, take the ride, and we'd all have to bus home together. So because <laughs> like, we're all sticking together. If one person does the ride, you can't take your ride. <laughs> all in a bus home for one hour together. I love it. I love it. Especially considering the name of your organization, Somali Together. From early, you were like, we go together. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually so funny. Eat together, uh, time together. You know, that's also, you know, what we learn from our culture, our religion. So it's like, you know, if we don't have each other, then life's going to be not as um, easy. Yeah. You know. I love this image that you paint of your child because it sounds like there's so much like brotherhood and togetherness. But I know that you both talked openly about, you know, some of the other challenges of what it was like growing up in the community. Can you speak to some of that, some of the other dynamics that you were a witness to? Yeah, for sure. Like, um, I grew up in not the best neighborhoods in, in Toronto and 
when you live in that at a young age, also like you're almost like desensitized to like all the crazy stuff you see on a day-to-day basis, right? From violences to a murder, not, you're not witnessing a murder, but then you, you the road's blocked and there's caution tape, what happened? Then you go home and you hear the news, right? And, and, and things like that. Like you don't even realize as a kid, like what you're taking in, you know, and you're seeing so much things that are, are pretty traumatic. And then it's like so scary, you know, because like that could be you. I remember we were at the mosque a few years ago and then like we had a day like where we they named all the people in the past like I think it was like 10-15 years I passed away due to gun violence and like just too many do you remember that day like yeah it was like a long list and we were just going line by line yeah and the, the thing is on that list it says the names and the age and you know these are our cousins our family our friends how did it hit you to be sitting there surrounded by other youth just hearing these lists of names I felt helpless because prior to that I like I never talked about that with my parents you know, like, it was just something that was, like, almost unsaid. Like, what my parents tell me is, like, okay, well, don't go to that neighborhood. It doesn't happen because, you know, you're going to go down the road. You know, we were constantly, I remember it was, like, one month where every weekend I was back for another burial. That was a conversation that I had with Muhammad that this could be me, like Muhammad said. Everybody's at the mosque when we all have a death, but, you know, can we um, be together in life and and uh, and try to inspire each other, push each other, help each other. The The death is so impactful when it happens, but, you know, the, the next few moments, it's like, it's it's kind of like things are get back to normal. I think it was like, you know, like I can't, can't go back to regular. Like, what are we, why are we lying? Like, everything's okay. Why are we smiling? Like, um, I think that's what it was. Is like, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a part of the problem. We have to do something. We don't know what it is, but we're going to call everybody we know and, and show up and talk about what's, what's some next steps we can take and, be together. Tell me about those next steps. Ahmed called me at nighttime. I remember it clearly. And he's like, Muhammad, like, I want a bunch of people to come to the mosque on Sunday um, so we could talk about it. He's like, he's like, can you call people, you know, and can you come? I said, cool. I also felt this, like, yearning desire to not be part of the problem anymore. Um, we're also getting old at the time. We were in our early 20s and we're like, we can't depend on our parents anymore. We have the the knowledge and the capabilities of their own two hands to, to do something. Um, about this so I remember calling a bunch of people I, mean, I was calling a bunch of people and then so many people showed up that Sunday to the mosque and I remember being at the mosque being surprised I mean I was taken aback by like how many people showed up not like we put a flyer up and, and you know it was really just through personal connections that all these people showed up and then we had like a little microphone in the room and uh, and a little speaker and then everybody kind of sat in a massive circle um, or sort of ish you know and then just started venting people talking about the issues. I know people were upset about the funeral that just passed. So, you know, a lot of emotions to Ahmed's point in the moment are there, right? You know, like everybody's upset in the moment. And then after that day, it was like, we need another Sunday. Like, it was just like, we need another day. Like, we can't like, peace out, like, take care. Um, and then I think the mosque was very quick to offer us a space, you know, like every Sunday. We're like, next Sunday we're here. Every week, like a hundred people are showing up. Like we couldn't fit the room. Like they had to break down a wall to make the room bigger for us because we were there every Sunday, you know. And like we just couldn't fit uh, fit in the space. And it was not about come here. We're gonna change your life. Let's come here, get to know each other, and I'll have a good time. Hopefully, these bonds that we're making can then, you know, de-escalate violence before it gets to that point. It just made this brotherhood, you know, in in the community that we didn't see before, um, which then transformed into smiling together later on. Were you ever worried? Because you said, like, you're bringing people from all across Toronto, the GTA, it's sounding like. And so given that neighborhood allegiance, were you worried about what that might mean to actually invite people all to be together and your ability to to hold that? 
Yeah, I think there was a couple moments when we're like, this is, you know, like, it could be a problem. But I think, like, we always are told to stay away. But, like, if we just do that, we're just going to keep perpetuating this issue, right? And the stuff that, where the arguments, people would just say, yo, guys, like, it's not that serious. Because now you have, you know, you have this um, this sense of, like, watching over each other. Nobody wants to see something happen. So people just remind each other, yo, guys, cut that. We don't, we're not here for that. (laughs) You've come a long way from being in a mosque and just a mic going around and people ranting to now having organized programs, being in your second year of starting youth programming. How have you seen your efforts impact the community? Um, We had 20 boys and 20 girls to to start off um, in, in our first year. I saw some some of these kids, some of the younger boys specifically, when they first started, like arms crossed, not saying a word, sitting back in their chair, not really engaging. You know, they're there because maybe they were told to be there or their friend dragged them there or, you know, and to see them like that at day one to now like smiling and laughing. And, you know, like their whole personalities, I think, have grown and changed in so many ways. So that's just one part when, when I'm looking at their personal development, like seeing how much they've grown as people. But then after... The boys that I'm thinking about right, or talking about right now um, went to Ahmed and said, we have an idea where we want to do like a, a sports camp for middle school kids in our neighborhood this summer, like when school's off. And then the, and Ahmed called me, I think he's like, oh, the boys have a business proposal for you. Like, you know, like it was like the funniest, you know, like, you know, the way, the way that he, you know, positioned it. I said, what? He's like, yeah, yeah. They want to get on a team's call with you. They want to set it up. Like, you know, they had this whole thing. How old? They're like 16 all. They're, they're all yeah, 16. They're fi- that you know? time they're 15. They're all in the 10th grade and, and they did all this and then. They ended up running this camp. It was really like dope to see like now they're doing something for their kids in their neighborhood at a younger age for I think it was like grade four to eight. And that's our goal. They're like they took nothing to something. Like wonder where they got that from. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this started from a place and a feeling of helplessness. There's always so much going on in the world and our communities and our families that can bring us to that place. What what is your relationship with helplessness now? It's still there, like, like to some degree. In the world, there's so much bad going on, you know? And the way I think we cope with it, it's we start with our family. Then we start with our community or and our friends. And then we work outwardly that way. It makes it more manageable. When you see all this, all this, all this craziness going on in the world and you look at it from the big level downwards... You can get overwhelmed. You can just, you know, like that's when we when we see all these names on a, on a, on, a, on a wall. So many. How can we address this? There's so many people. You know, forget what's going on in the world. Just in Toronto alone. So looking at it from a smaller, and Ahmed says this to me all the time. You know, we need like what are we doing if we're not starting with our brother and our sister? Yeah, when you see that things are getting better, and you know, even if the like Mohammed said, the top to bottom looks crazy, at least you know in our in our world, in our immediate world things are looking hopeful and that you know the programming we're doing now these same boys that are saying that we want to do what you do are going to do it it's like starting starting small and then going big yeah thank you both for for sharing the journey with me it looks it looks beautiful from here thank you so much i'm not going to listen to our story and um yeah i can say i I have so many things i would love to say but yeah you know but just like in like in a sense of gratitude you know because it's like how as we walked into the building, I was like, CBC, and like, you know, like, you know, and, just like, <laughs> and it's just like, we had a session with the youth about like creating our own narrative and like why that's so important. This is adding to that, you know, telling our stories and the positive stories and not just be desensitized to, to negative news all the time. Mm.
Thank you. This is Now or Never. I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And today we are taking matters into our own hands. And Ifi, before I take matters into my own hands, the first thing I like to do is, is take my iPad into my own hands and log on to YouTube. Because, <laughs> oh my goodness, the amount of times I've gone to YouTube to help me figure out how to fix something, how to change a battery in my car, how to fix my washing machine, how to build a fence. I got to tell you, I'm on it all of the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are some things in life that even YouTube, Trevor, cannot fix. You just got to take a chance and, and give it a try. When we first moved here, constantly, sometimes we still do it, we'll look at each other and say, we live here. Like, isn't this just amazing that we actually live here? And it's just the, the mountains, we call them mountains, more like hills. The lake there is just massive. It feels like an ocean. And it's just so beautiful, especially in the fall. Nestled in the forest between Wawa and Sault Ste. Marie is a 16-acre property Amanda Cascanet and Dave Barrett call Wilderstead. They live in a modest house surrounded by gardens and chicken coops where Amanda works from home as a biologist and Dave is dedicated full-time to the garden and homestead. First thing I'm gonna do Cut these stems back, get them out of the way. That's a decent potato there. I am having poutine tonight. <laughs> For the past five years, they've been working towards becoming more self-sufficient. So they grow a huge variety of vegetables and something you'd never expect. Loofahs. Uh, so this is our first year doing loofahs. It's just a really big cucumber, essentially, that is very fibrous on the inside. So once it gets older um, you can just pull off the skin and clean out the inside and then you have a sponge yeah so we've been really enjoying it but the couple plants that dave put in the greenhouse have taken off and it's now a loofah jungle in there yeah <laughs> the vines have gone up all over the ceiling and all the sides and there's just loofah hanging down you can't walk in there without hitting your head on a loofah you know, I've used a loofah in the shower for years, and I've never once realized it was also a vegetable. Now, as much as I love the sound of all of this, I have to ask why they're doing it. Our goal is to separate ourselves from capitalism as much as possible, but we know we can't do that alone. If we want to have some luxuries, for example, we have a coffee tree, but we're not going to be able to grow all of our coffee ever. Like, we're never going to do that. As long as we want to have coffee, we need to participate in capitalism or as long as we want chocolate. But our goal is to basically, instead of trading all of our time for money, which then we can buy the food that we need, we're instead trading our time for the food and the fuel that we need and just kind of taking out the middleman a little bit. We are fed up with capitalism. Uh, capitalism is so unstable and is so bad for the environment and for people. It is strictly profit-driven. That is all. That's the only thing that matters within capitalism is profit. We have to constantly grow and grow and grow. And to do that, you need to sacrifice things. And usually that means employees. It means environment. It means morals. <laughs> and so essentially by moving as much of the stuff that we would have to buy into something that we can produce, we're kind of 
being anarchist in a way or resisting what we feel is a failing system, understanding that we still have to live in it. I think in a shit hits the fan situation, folks who are informing themselves about food systems and fuel systems and taking that into your own hands probably have a better chance of being comfortable because it's something that has been lost. It's insane. The amount of separation that we have from the things that we consume now. We're not doomsday preppers. We're not like, okay, shit's going to hit the fan. It's going to happen probably in our lifetime. We really need to be prepared for this. It's more like of a thought experiment. If it were to happen, who would I be in that scenario? Would I be a taker or a giver? Our lifestyle lines up more with our priorities than it did before. We don't want to just drop ourselves from the grid and all of a sudden have to like huddle around a wood stove in the winter or hand crank uh, all of our appliances. We still want to be able to live the way we do right now and comfortably. And so one way I'm working towards not using as much power or outside resources is say, okay, well, maybe we can hand crank this one thing or and still feel like we're living our lives to our fullest. It's another cool, crisp morning on the Wilderstead today. But hey, at least the sun's shining. Today, we're gonna fire up the solar power in the greenhouse. It's a rather simple setup. We have a thousand watt power inverter, a 30 amp, 12 volt charge control. We, we do not have enough solar here. We went for a month off grid, completely turned the power off in February one year. And it just, we didn't have sun that much. So none of our solar setup that we thought, hey, this will help a little bit, helped at all. So we ended up using like a generator and it's a long road to being off grid. And uh, we're just working at it one little step at a time. This climate changing um, with the temperature increasing and seeing evidence of it with the forest fires and more dynamic climate um, is definitely like making it front of mind for a lot more people. And then how these tensions are now acting out in really awful situations with hate and wars. And so I think, yes, it is a lot more front of mind. Um, but I feel like the human race is very adaptable. Um, and uh, I, I personally, I'm not going to speak for both of us, don't see it just like collapsing. I feel like we have the capacity to adapt and figure this out. So I'm not going to put on my tinfoil hat anytime soon. Yeah, I see it as a very long, drawn-out process that is going to be torture for a lot of people. Well, we just need to realize we need to do things differently. And uh, it's just a matter of whether or not uh, we can do that to save it. Amanda and Dave document their lives on their YouTube channel, showing people how they grow their own food and sharing recipes. There is a lot to see on their Wilderstead channel because the work never stops. We still have like a hundred onions in there that have to be dried and done something with and zucchinis and we still have carrots in the soil. We still have chickens to process and turkeys to process. And so, so many days are are busy until it is dark outside 
and then inside after it's dark, then preserving all that stuff. always thought that maybe I am someone who is a little too good <laughs> at doing things on my own. I'm not I'm not big at asking for help or reaching out, but doing a whole episode about people who are fed up and taking matters into their own hands, I'm reminded that there is a another way of doing that and that involves community because almost everyone on the episode needed other people to help or doing things by themselves brought them even closer to people and I feel like this is all a big lesson and if you just ask for help that's that's what taking matters into your own hands is like involving people is this your way of saying you want to come help me with my renovations because absolutely you not. are more than welcome to just I'm busy that day I have I have extra hammers just come on down <laughs> I have a crowbar waiting for you. You know who will help you, though. Can you lay tile? Our Now or Never team of producers. Sarah Tate is ready to go. Oh, excellent. Bridget Forbes, she owns a saw. Betsy Trumpener, I believe, has a sledgehammer. Caroline Hillier, she knows her way around a screwdriver. And Katie Swales, I believe, was an engineer in a former life. (laughs) (laughs) This house is going to be done before we know it. All because I took matters into my own hands. (laughs) And I will supervise from a distance. (laughs) Take care, everybody. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.